live. Not live, because we're not live on this October 24th, 2023. It's a fancy expert business pants. I'm your analyst, Tol Matt Muscardi. Damien Rollis is in the studio with me. Today's episode doesn't suck because we have a special Woke Wednesday with arguably the fanciest expert we've ever had on business pants, Mr. John Lukomnik. John is the founder of Sinclair Capital and the host of the Outside In with John Lukomnik podcast. He's written three books, more than 50 articles dealing with investing theory and governance and future beta, all sorts of stuff. He's a High Meadows Institute fellow, a professor at Columbia. He was an executive director at IRRC for almost a decade, and he started his career in the comptroller's office of New York City in the 90s, which means if it's been done, John's seen it. Now, we had a long conversation. We hit like a lot of stuff. Um, but we're going to cut it down for Woke Wednesday just to focus in on the anti-woke. And we're going to do a little governance game at the end. Here's John Lukomnik talking about fancy stuff. So one of the things that struck me about, um, and you spent 10 years at you know, IRC. You've been all over the place. But at the comptroller's office, I'm thinking about the fact that you are in a democratic government. So like taking not progressive stance, but like, cause I think politics or like, you know, the view of politics in investing was very different in 1998 than it is today. But I'm wondering how much, how different it is like then versus now when we're seeing like in Texas and Oklahoma and Louisiana and, you know, South Carolina and where they're effectively using like, like a, what is a data set on environment as a cudgel against asset managers somehow because these asset managers are lemmingly conventionally failing on something like carbon because they're none of them are taking like big future views they're basically just doing what everybody else is doing it wasn't different then than it is now were you under pressure then to do things that were politically motivated at all or is that like a, is this a newer phenomenon and it's pretty specific to the anti-esg crowd at this point i could unpack that into a really big set of questions because i think that there are a bunch of assumptions built into your question I, yeah, um, I do that all for, the time. For, for a terrible I, mean, interviewer. I teach systems level investing now at the graduate school, the School of International Public Affairs at Columbia. And one of the things I say is for an issue to have an effect on the environmental, social, and financial systems on which our capital markets rely, because let's face it, value and risk are creating the real world and only priced in the financial markets. Mm. It has to be big enough, right? Like whether or not I paint the office at General Motors purple or blue or pink or orange isn't a big enough issue, right? Whether I discriminate against women is a big issue. Whether I deal with carbon change is a big issue. Income inequality is a big issue. Antimicrobial resistance, all the sort of systemic things that we deal with. Once you're a big enough issue, there are going to be political views because it plays out. It has to be big enough to affect society and the economy. So there are going to be politicians involved. So there are always politicians involved. What's different now is we were told to figure it out 
from a fiduciary viewpoint of what's best and worst for the beneficiaries. And we were allowed to go where we want. It's a little bit like how for years Republicans have said um, you're not allowed to compile statistics. The federal government is allowed to compile statistics on gun violence because they had a political view. And so they didn't allow it. So, for instance, you mentioned Texas, or as I call it, uh, the United Soviet Socialist Republic of Texas. Um, I find it fascinating. I'll give you a little story. Um, a year ago, the Texas General Land Office writes to the state controller, a gentleman named Glenn Hager, yeah. um, who is keeping the um, the Christmas list of good children and bad children. I see, yeah, and, that's my favorite list, yeah. yeah. And obviously, BlackRock is a bad child uh, in their view because they believe BlackRock is boycotting oil and gas. And um, the Texas General Land Office says, we have these private equity funds for BlackRock. And, um, you know, we don't have to divest from them. What do you think? And Mr. Hager says, well, you really should rethink what you're doing because it's BlackRock. Now, do you know what those private equity funds were? They were oil and oil gas, gas infrastructure funds, <laughs> no. right? So when I see the Soviet Socialist Republic, let's go through this. What the Soviet Union did was say, here are going to be our favored and disfavored sectors of the economy. Okay, Texas does that. They say we want to favor oil and gas. Then they say, here are the players who are doing well and poorly in that. And now we have our favorite apparatchiks and the people we're going to make comrades of the Soviet Party, or in this case, the Texas Republican Party. Um, and then at some point, you forget the rationale you're doing this to begin with, and you just have people you favor and people you disfavor. And so Mr. Hager is saying, yeah, you ought to get rid of your oil and gas because we want to protect oil and gas. Um, and that sort of political irrationality didn't exist. Well, well, I'm glad, actually, to know that there's been some progress. Right. I mean, this great progress. Look, it took... Um, a bunch of left-wing autocrats, you know, 70 years to reach that state in the Soviet Union. It took Texas 10 months. So there's great productivity <laughs> in, in, being, in being autocratic and stupid. They've gotten much better at it. I can't, I still can't get over the, the tremendous irony that in order to create their good children, bad children list, they went and bought data from MSCI, and we only know that because MSCI had to reduce their fee under the you know the threshold that that Texas had set for above this threshold it, it has to be audited, and and they bought ESG data, and then used it in reverse, which brings me to the question of, is what they're doing really that different from the ESG side? It's kind of a form of beta activism. I'll be it's stupider, but they're using a data set to make a decision about a portfolio decision. No, I'm going to reject that, Matt, because yeah, the please. reality is they may be using that methodology, but they have decided ex ante what the answer is. Mm. When you and they're working backwards, they're saying, right. "We know that you should be doing oil and gas. We know you should." By the way, at the same time, they're taking tens of billions of dollars in IRA money to build solar farms and a bunch of other things. Yeah, like that. yeah, that's yeah. a different issue. Um, and and so it's sort of like this. Um, 
we are going to tell you, Galileo, that the sun revolves around the earth, whether or not you have the evidence. And I think that what ESG people at least hopefully try to do, and I will admit there are people who start from um, the sky is falling, we have to save planet and earth, and therefore everything fits within our paradigm. Um, but what I think intelligent ESG people try to do is say, here's the data, here's the extrapolation, what's the logical conclusion? As opposed to, here's the conclusion, how do we make the data fit? So while they both use data, one is using it um, to argue from a conclusion and one is using it to reach a conclusion. I think those are two very different things. Except that there's a branch of ESG data in particular that deals with sort of morality, right? Like which in which there is a predetermined conclusion that, you know, uh, abortion is bad or like whatever the a religious reason, a moral reason. And they're using that data for that same reason. Mm -hmm. And there are pension funds who are invested. When you look at the constituent indexes, the ESG indexes, one of the underlying you know, things in those indexes, in the methodology, is they almost always X tobacco, X like, you know, some form of arms, like usually cluster bombs or something like that, because clients have asked for it. But it means it's pre-built in. There's a moral pre-built into a lot of these indexes, not all. But I don't know that the pension funds know that that's built in there. But the fact is, on both sides, there are sort of... You know, it's it seems like two legs of the same stool in as much as they have a conclusion. They're then using the data to backtrack it into their portfolio. The downside in Texas being they're actually it would be like, you know, if I'm, you know, anti-abortion or anti-women's health rights. If I went out and said, like, all right, remove that from my portfolio and at the same time added all, you know, uh, women's health rights providers into my portfolio because they're axing oil and saying they discriminate against oil. It makes no sense. You know, you raise a good point. First off, if you're not a fiduciary, feel free to invest according to your values, right? No yeah. problem. You're investing your own money. You want to invest only in coal-fired power plants. You know, I think you're making a mistake, but that's fine. Um, when you're someone else's fiduciary, you have an obligation to make sure that your personal political views don't get in the way. Um, you can consider them, you can think about them, um, but ultimately you're a fiduciary. And, but, there's, but that's not as, that's sort of where most people's conventional discussion stops. I'm going to go a step further. How does something become material, right? Ooh. And there are values and morals built into that discussion because the two ways things become material that weren't previously, and I'll give you a great example in a second, is either scientific knowledge evolves, the reason that climate change wasn't an issue in the 1970s was we didn't know it was an issue, or morals evolve. So... Let me ask you, what was the single largest source of collateral for the London bank loan market in the early 19th century? George Soros. He wasn't alive, and thank you for the anti <laughs> market spot. Thanks for injecting um, that. But, but in the lives of black Southern slaves, right? In, it, okay. in the London bank loan 
market in the early 19th century was the lives of um, southern slaves. They were viewed as collateral. They were property. Mm-hmm. They were, right? Clearly, as the morality of slavery became obvious, or the immorality of slavery became obvious, despite Ron DeSantis's new curriculum in Florida, um, as the immorality of slavery became obvious, that became a much riskier and therefore material to the loan market issue. Mm-hmm. And so over time, some of those value issues or values, personal values, become real value, market moving price issues. And the, the, it tends to go in, someone raises an issue, it either gets traction or doesn't, then there's reputational risk, then there's regulatory risk. And so it's not as simple as saying statically at this moment, we were talking about future beta and future yeah, yeah. things, Statically, at this moment, um, this isn't a material risk. You may be right, but I think you have an obligation, depending on your time frame, to say, could it become, if so, when, how do I deal with it? Well, the, the SEC would not agree with your definition of materiality because they basically say any piece of information, or SEC, no, it was no, the, the Supreme, Supreme Court. Court. Supreme Court. They would, well, there's an interesting tension there too. So the Supreme Court definition of materiality is a piece of information which in the totality would cause a reasonable investor to think differently. But what's interesting there, if you think about it, is the determinant of what's material is the reasonable investor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the determinant of the disclosure of what they think is material is a company. And so you have this tension, and I think it's now being played out, shareholder commons, which disclosure I'm on the board of, raises this all the time, that if I'm a portfolio investor, what your company does to the environmental system matters. But it may not matter for your company in terms of maximizing enterprise value. So there's this tension, and I think we're right at this phase where that's going to be worked out over the next 15, 20 years. Um, what does What's material in terms of affecting the systems on which the health of the capital markets rely as opposed to the enterprise value of the individual company that's making the determination of what to disclose? So there's a there's a weird thing. So I'm not sure that the Supreme Court would disagree with what I'm saying. Um, they would say if you're a reasonable investor, and that's why I said the process of going through it and documenting it and bringing people along, they will give deference to a reasonable investor's decision, not a company's decision. I don't know if Brett Kavanaugh would. I don't. I I I mean, I'm not. I Do don't you know. Brett Kavanaugh personally. was the lawyer for the Council of Institutional Investors at one point. Was he really? Yes. Right. Sarah, Sarah hired Sarah, um, who was the first uh, executive director, hired him at one point, and and when he was under attack, wrote a um, defense of him, which I thought Aww. was misguided. But yeah, um, there it is. He it, doesn't. The world like is a strange place. What can yeah. I tell you guys? Hey, a job's a job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a gig. Um, uh, uh, I, I have a, like a side question here because it does seem like in, when we're talking about, you know, the, the rational investor, it's the prudent man theory, right? Like, and it's the man part um, that I'm interested in because the anti-ESG crowd, the anti-woke crowd, um, this is called a um, awkward segue. But I want to get <laughs> into the question of... 
whether or not, like, it seems like there's two factors playing out with all of, like, Vivek Ramaswamy and Strive Asset Management on one hand, which is, like, quietly anti-women and people of color. Like, that that just seems, when you look at, like, the voting record of Strive, for instance, they are voting overwhelmingly, almost at a two-to-one ratio, voting women out even though like the, all the directors still stay in because they don't have any sway, but they're voting against female directors at a two to one ratio. Um, and then there's the oil and gas slash, you know, like the, as you call it, like the communist sort of approach. I, I don't know how to gel those things, except that it's just all political opportunism. But why? I can't make sense of this because it does seem like now, and we did a segment on the show yesterday, I'm defending all the companies that I hate. Right. Like I am out there saying like BlackRock isn't the enemy here. Like I don't understand. I spent 10 years saying BlackRock doesn't do anything for real. They vote every director in. they vote against every proxy. And now I'm saying like, wait a minute, BlackRock's capitalist. They are what they they are. Why are we saying that they're woke? I I don't. Uh, can you actually maybe make me feel better about myself? <laughs> Good luck with this answer. Um. Again, multiple questions. So let me take the first one first and then the second one, because the second one's a bigger one. Um, the first one, and I think you give by even mentioning Strive as um, a capital market force, you um, inflate their influence. They have virtually no assets. You've given oh, yeah, they're nobody. Ramaswamy much but more But Fivik was on our show. I, I, you know, I know, he was on your show, and, you know, he's he, he has great teeth, and you've given him <laughs> um, much more credibility than I, I think he deserves. Um, but that's okay. Um, I mean, he's supposed to be a nice guy, and I actually know people who work for Strive, and they're nice, too. So if you're listening to this, Vivek or Laura or anyone else, remember, it's business. Come buses. on the show again. snarky, so. Yeah, stop um, ignoring our emails. Yeah, come back. Um, but... Um, the reality is, I think that what a lot of the anti-woke stuff is, remember I said they're arguing from a um, conclusion. And when you trace it back, a lot of it's funded by the same guy who funded the Supreme Court, um, Drift to the Right, uh, Leo, whatever mm -hmm. his name is, um, which is what Del Minow has done brilliantly, tracing it back to him. And the reality is it's a combination of two things. Number one, a feeling by a large percentage of the traditional power base population, which is sort of um, that, that the elites, coastal elites, are imposing a value system on them. And there's, you know, I'm not unsympathetic to that view. But it's resulted in a lashing out, um, and they, the reason that BlackRock or others were chosen is because for the first time, actually, things were changing, and people did have power, and BlackRock was voting more in a certain way. And so um, it was a new front to open in a war of, quote, traditional values, end quote, versus coastal elites. And that's why, um, you know, the anti-DEI, the anti-gender um, uh, diversity um, plays into that, because when you think of it as an anti-elite 
uh, battle. Um, and by the way, what's more elite than having a lot of money? So that fits. Really well, well. Led by a, a Harvard, two Harvard grads and Yale. And, and, Trump, and, and he was, you know, <laughs> not as rich as he thinks he is, but certainly wealthy. And, you know, um, and yes, we could go on and, you know, and Ron DeSantis went to Yale. And so yeah, not, you're not asking. Are you asking for consistency here? I mean, have you no, I, I guess not. I'm, <laughs> um, I'm asking to feel better. You know, I don't know um, how and then the that. second thing is, I think a more uh, a major one, um, which is not a finance thing, which is you have a breakdown of the neoliberal consensus post World War II. You see it around the world. The percentage of um, there's there's a there's a group that rates whether you live in an autocracy, a terrorist state. Uh, illiberal democracy or liberal democracy. And the percentage of the world that lives in a liberal democracy has decreased under 30%. Right? Okay. Um, from what? What was, from what it, number? It was, it was in the 60s. Oh, like, wow. be, it, was in, it was in the 40s, but it's, it's only in, it's it's like a not year. making me feel better. Right. <laughs> and, and then you have it's not his job. Pardon me? Yeah, we're just saying, I, this is not making me feel better. And Damien said it's not, not why job. John's here. Well, you he asked me to explain <laughs> it. I mean, <laughs> you asked me to be a therapist. You asked me yeah. to explain it. Uh, <laughs> so I can explain. I, 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 you know, I believe in, as much as I can do it, fact-based analysis. And this is the difference when you get back to your art, the anti-history people. No, I'm not arguing from a conclusion. I'm arguing from this is what's going on in the world. <laughs> you, you guys... Stink at making me feel better. No, I'm not going to answer any more of these no. questions. I came on to be snarky and have fun, not yeah. to not not to, to have a serious discussion about the end of. Well, the let's have fun. No, my game fun. is not fun. My game is not fun. <laughs> Damien, do you have a, do you have a five minute game we can yeah, play to wrap out this I have segment? My, my quick and I, dirty, nerdy, agree or disagree corporate governance game. How about that? Yeah, well, we can make that fun by yeah, being nerdy fun. and nerdy. okay, good. Well, you're supposed to like play it up. Yeah, yeah, sure, down. sure. You yeah, but like, you, you thoroughly depressed me today. Oh, look, I don't know what to tell you. I, I didn't have enough coffee. I don't know what's going on. John, when I come on your pod, we I'll I'll, I'll be more fun. I'll be ridiculous. Um, uh, but my Damien, pod is a serious, must listen to look, interesting people pod. You know, I may withdraw the invitation. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> this, this podcast is fact based snark, and sometimes yeah, we are what we say it's we are. Sad snark. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, Damien, let's play a quick game. Um, we got, what do you got? Five questions, agree or disagree? Let's call it 6.7. 6 6.7 questions. Yeah. Yes, yes, no, no, yes, maybe. Yes. There you go, wins. Um, go ahead, let's go question Here by go. question. Quickly. Let's make it quick. Yeah. Disparate voting rights should be effectively banned. One share, one vote for all. I am for it. Um, I will, so that's an unequivocal yes. Um, once you go public, that is, I should think should be conditioned. Um, again, I live in the real world. I am willing to go with the, you're allowed to go public with uneven, but there should be a sunset after, you know, whether it's five years or seven years, but ideally it should be one show, one vote. You know, nuance. Matt, I was, no nuance here. I was thinking about yeah. you're talking about the, the rise of like autocratic nations. Does it parallel the, the rise of like autocratic yes, CEOs they, here in the United States? Yeah. Tech. Absolutely, because the reality is the argument for unequal voting rights is that Mr., and I will yield to Matt here, it's usually Mr. Founder, is mm -hmm. so unique and so wonderful 
mm-hmm. that no one can replace the wisdom and yes. the flexibility of insulating Mr. Wonderful from the marketplace. And the problem, of course, is you're not always wonderful. You reach a stage that founders should give up. And if you don't, you reach the height. Who is the guy? Um, cable television. Um, I can see him in my mind. Um, and when he was asked, um, George Soros. No, you're <laughs> than that. Um, they blame him for everything. I don't know. Right. No. <laughs> when asked about succession planning, his answer was, "I don't plan to die." Yeah. Um, oh, you know, I'm sorry. Doesn't work. Uh, com- That's a, okay. it sounds Ted Turnerish. Not Ted. <laughs> Talk about Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> no, uh, Wait, no, he's dead. Okay. He's dead. He, now. He, he, he right. Oh, but he, he didn't died, plan yeah. it. He didn't plan it. That's what he said. Yeah. Damien, next question. Uh, controlled companies are not public companies and should be considered private, like like X, for instance, your beloved Elon. Do you really want to give up whatever measure of societal impact you have on X? by letting them be considered totally private. That's what we talk about a lot, right? Like that's the risk, right? And letting some of these companies go private is that we no longer no, get to I, get I, our hands dirty. I think dirty. controlled companies are controlled companies and, and they are in their own special area and that there should be extra protections for the non-affiliated share owners, um, you know, and, and uh, they are a difficult breed. Um, and I think that, therefore, th- um, Delaware courts should interpret the business judgment rule a little differently on controlled companies like X. Mm-hmm. Okay. This, Matt, you you have a disgruntled <sighs> sigh there? No, I just don't. I, I keep thinking about why X isn't on an index anymore, but, like, you know, like dual class controlled companies are on yeah. indexes. And it's like, what's the fucking point? What the, are we, point is, what, the point what, is those indexes want those companies on their index. That's the point. You know, you're also looking at what's the purpose of an index, and that's a whole other podcast you could do. <laughs> well, uh, that one we, would we be do a lot of podcasts, snarkier. so we'll cover that. Yeah, that would eventually. be that would be that's the snarky fun one. Yeah, the one uh, about index construction. Next question is multi-layered. It'll keep going depending on how you answer. We'll start with the, the oh Jesus the overall question. What way do I stop it? Is there like a <laughs> <laughs> management management should be excluded from boards of directors. No management on boards. No insiders. I Interesting like question. Hmm. Um, I am pausing because obviously the U.S. standard is sort of you have one, maybe two insiders on the board. Um, that is not the standard around the rest of the world. And it's not even the standard for a couple of the well-governed companies here. And and to me, it is one of those things where it's a cultural issue. Um, mm-hmm. I once had a conversation with, um, in fact, it was my podcast, the CEO of Henry Schein. Henry Schein is a Fortune 500 company, medical dental product distribution. And I think they have four or five insiders on their board. And I was postulating your question. And his answer to me was, you have to understand the culture of the board. By having those people, there are people who know every bit as much as I do about what's going on, and they can inform the other board members. And the other board members have, the independent board members have an open door policy to any of those people. They don't have to let me know they're in the building. They they can call them. They can check me out. And so in his case, he was looking at it as a check and balance on the CEO. 
um, I think that only works with a very particular type of culture. Um, so I generally prefer fewer executives. I, it, to me, it doesn't matter if the CEO is on the board or not. The CEO is going to be present and presenting. I'm on the board of a mutual fund. We actually didn't have any management representatives. We were totally independent and we changed it and put the CEO of the company on the board because we wow. wanted his ass to have the same legal threat as being a fiduciary ah, board as the rest of us and the same responsibility as a board member, which is different than just being a CEO. So I'm comfortable with the It's a perspective rule. I haven't heard before. I like that answer. Yeah. yeah. I'm comfortable with the US rule that says one uh, mm-hmm. or it doesn't say no, it doesn't. When I say rule, it's not a regulation. It's yeah, a, right. A, a common state of one or mm-hmm. most two. All right, then let me jump to the the end then on this one then. By, okay. by your answer, should CEOs be disqualified to be board chairs? Then should they absolutely yes, not they be board be chairs? Separate, there should be a separate. In fact, we have that on this mutual fund board. Uh, the CEO is not the board chair. That is a different role. Um, I much prefer um, having a separate chair, independent chair, um, and CEO. Uh, it's something we talked about in our show yesterday. Directors should not be appointed to boards directly without an initial shareholder vote. So we have this, the, the way the mechanism seems to work at American companies at, is that the board is allowed to appoint a director, right, directly to the board, who then waits for the next annual meeting to, to get uh, uh, approval from the shareholders? But we're making the case that you know why why is this allowed to happen? Why isn't why aren't they facing an initial? I want vote? them up on stage having debates like presidential candidates at AGMs. Like, well, no, that candidate said they'll do this, but I promise to do that. I want like if it's dem- democratic, make it democratic. If it's an appointed position, make it an appointed position. Why are we having like a, this middle ground? This weird middle ground. It is confusing. Stephen Davis, um, who really is one of the great um, thinkers in this area, I've written two books with Stephen, um, initially wanted to have an hour-long call for every board nominee. Ooh. And I pointed out with, if you own a portfolio of, you know, a couple of hundred or a couple of thousand stocks, and there's an average of five <laughs> trustees, um, yeah. you've used your entire year just to listen to board calls. And I said, well, so, um, you know, ISS or Glass-Lewis or some intermediary will have to summarize. I said, great, now we're giving these people more power, right? Um, And so I don't have a good answer for you. On your question, um, I think there, you know, there are still um, things where a lot of companies where directors um, don't get the interim appointment do come on with the annual vote. Yeah, Um, it does does happen. Mm -hmm. That does happen, and it also happens the way you described it. I think the question is why, right? Mm. If someone's retiring or resigning or is incapacitated and you're replacing someone, it's one thing. Um, The problem is more deep than that, and there's this great company, Free Float, that has all this uh, information (laughs) about directors. I like the segue. It's true. I heard of them. Yeah, you have. All this information about directors and you know, 
it it's really hard for anyone who's not in the boardroom to understand yeah. who's a good director and who's sure. not, or even to know who the directors are. I mean, I, you guys are in the business. Can you tell me every director in the largest company in the world, Microsoft? Like, can you tell me every? No, I couldn't no. tell you every director of Microsoft. Either. But it, but it, but it's human nature to to want to know and to want to evaluate, right? And to and to want to create these assessments, right? I mean, this is not human oh, nature. Absolutely, yeah. I'm just saying that 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 um, again reality-based, if you've got an average of nine directors, and even if you have a hundred stock portfolio, that's mm-hmm. 900 directors. And it's really hard to understand them. And so we do rely on intermediaries and data providers like FreeFlow right. or ISS or whoever um, to get it done. So I'm not sure that the, the question you ask, um, you know, I can give you an ideological judgment, which is, yes, of course, they should have to stand for election. Sure. But in reality, does it, do I think it makes that much of a difference? No. doesn't. No. Wow. And it, but it doesn't, but according to the data anyway, it doesn't matter anyway. They'll be voted in irregardless. Yeah, 96%. Right. That's, that's what I'm saying. Now, <laughs> if we could get to a point where there are actual real votes yeah. and people yeah. really or, care about the directors, that then I'll go that would, with... How about I'm giving exactly. that magic land? That's but how I'm about competing it. slates of directors? How about instead of just putting up a director for you a just slot? made it a worse problem? Okay. You just made it a okay. harder well, no, problem. Better for me. Better for me. Well, you're absolutely correct, and the market actually agrees with you. So you're probably well. We, this is a nerdy podcast, so people are aware of proxy access. For those of you who are not aware of it, it's where the shareholders get to nominate a director to the board. We'll just leave it at that, mm-hmm. and it has a troubled history of it was a proposed rule that it was uh, judicially overturned and then the New York City Controller, um, there were only six companies in the United States that had it, the New York City Controller's office after me, so I had nothing to do with it, not claiming credit, um, decided that they were going to try and make this the standard. Mm-hmm. That created a natural experiment. I don't know if you guys are aware, there's actually an academic paper. One of the people was an economist from the SEC that said the mere announcement of proxy access created a 52 basis point excess return. So the market even agrees with you. I like that. That there should be more choice and more attention paid to directors. I'm just saying, given the current state of the market, it's not, you know, how often has proxy access been used? Sure. Yeah. Well, we're... Yeah, we're nothing but aspirational over here. So this yeah, is yeah, aspirationally, <laughs> aspirationally, directionally, I'll agree with you, David. Okay. Uh, how about one more? Um, Last one. American boards should include at least one employee representative. That's an easy one. How about that? That's one? your favorite one. Yeah, that's, that's my favorite. favorite well, one. I, I yeah. have this. You know, I would like to to change the system in a way that that we could define instead of defining materiality and all that boring stuff. Uh, because no one's ever going to agree on that. Because I, it's my case that everything is material, um, especially in the long term. Because how the hell can you predict whether it will you, be or won't be? Matt Levine, everything's security for it. Everything's material. Yeah, well, it's actually it's funny because you were talking about like doesn't matter what color GM paints its room purple, pink, whatever. I, I could read Damien's mind, and he was like, I absolutely want to know if it's purple well, or pink. Like but that the to ge- me. But with the generation based on that, but with the generation <laughs> coming, they have a whole. They can't even afford mortgages, and they can't afford their rent. So they're probably gonna care what the color of the paint is in their workplace, <laughs> right? Because because they have nowhere to go after work. Uh, Damien's dream, just to contextualize this, is a screen that has a scrolling salaries of everyone who works at every company 
in the lobby and that everybody in the company has to do a five minute stand up routine every single year because it's the hey, most undressing I, thing that could possibly happen. I came of age in the governance uh, under Bob Monks at the corporate library and uh, we, you know, disclosure is king. I don't know. I mean, I, I think <laughs> sunlight is the best disinfectant. Uh, you know, let's, let's, let's get at it. Let's, a let's, lot of sunlight. Yeah. So, so I'm going to uh, give you an answer you probably sure. don't expect. Um, I have a problem with constituency directors. I have okay. a problem. I don't want a director who's the cybersecurity guy. I don't or mm-hmm. a woman. I don't want a director who's the medical person or the pharmaceutical. I don't want and the I, I I want directors with that knowledge. And similarly about employees, um, it sounds good, but what happens is. The other directors defer to that director around that issue and don't feel they have to become engaged. Okay. Oh. Um, and so I want employee issues in the boardroom. I don't, th- in some cases, it may be the way to get them there is to have an employee representative. But in other cases, I'm not sure it is. And then you get into um, the whole question. And, and, and I worked with, you know, the UC pension funds, the boards were half employee union leaders and half city officials. Mm-hmm. And so I have no problem with them being the employee representative. But when you make it, um, and for them, that was the appropriate way to get the employee voice heard mm-hmm. on those boards. If you're at, I don't know, some multinational manufacturing plant company, does having, even if it's a union leader from the U.S., deal with your employees in Vietnam? Does it deal with your employees at a different sure. union in the U.S.? And so I want to have employee issues, you know, for every company that says, our most valuable asset is our workers and it treats them like shit. Um, yeah. I would like them to actually believe that and have that um information, whether it is employee satisfaction surveys, um, ILO rights, a whole host of things discussed in the boardroom. But when you say this is an easy one, for me, it's not an easy one because I don't know that in every circumstance having uh, mandating employee representative in the boardroom um, answers the question and Could- I think the other directors to also take some responsibility for it. Could it could it have like the inverse effect of the presence of management on the board in, in the sense that the, the the presence of insiders on the board is is must have a kind of overwhelming effect on the on the outsiders, right? I mean, there must be a pressure to, to could could there be a pressure exerted the other way to have an employee representative in the room to hear these discussions to be on the inside? Yes, could that right? Absolutely, and I think getting the viewpoint. Of employees, and again, I don't want to create artificial barriers with Arda. Um, getting the viewpoint of employees into the board of directors is um, critical. The only question we're discussing is what is the mechanism for doing that? Right, okay. So I can see if I am, you know, on the board of a car company, I want, I want to talk to Sean Fadden, I want to hear what he's saying in the room. I don't know that I need my UAW rep in the room at every board meeting 
you know, where, but I want to, I want to at least, you know, periodically once a year, semi-annually, um, have some sort of systemic, systematic way of gathering um, what are the issues that the employees are feeling, how are we doing competitively with employees, a whole host of things. Um, and by the way, that's why I think it's important for um, whenever I've been on a board of directors, you know, I always want to have employee dinners and go at least two levels down from the CEO and know who's around. Part of it's succession planning, but part of it's also just you start getting a feel of what's right and what's wrong sure. and what's going on, right? Mm -hmm. So I have to, we're going to wrap up the pod here. I have to apologize because oh. you're, you're way, far too interesting for me to have allowed you to be more snarky. So we're going to have to do a follow-up. Yeah. I just started snarky. I mean, come on. In which. There's no requirement. Uh, like we, we we because we can have you on to a live show where we play the good game and then it's all like um, uh, ridiculous silliness, um, you know. Uh, but but I had far too many questions. Like I I I, I and I told you before we hit record. That, that I remember from like 15 years ago sitting in a meeting with you and you said one thing that stuck with me for the last 15 years. I've been thinking about future beta and that concept. So I've had like 15 years of built up questions and I didn't get a wow. chance to ask you about like, um, you know, what Ron DeSantis's favorite color should be um, uh, and fun things like that. But I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's John Lukomnik, the great John Lukomnik, the, the governance expert of governance experts. I don't know. That seems The reductive. governance expert of governance experts. That's impressive. Yeah, it seems reductive almost, <laughs> though, doesn't it? It doesn't seem like it's uh, enough credibility. Yeah. Um, but thank you for coming on the show um, and, and, and putting yeah. up with our questions. Thank it, you, John. It's a little bit, if you're a sports fan, there are two ways to get the Hall of Fame to be really good, which you're implying or to be around for a long time and be a piler, which is what I actually think my career has been. So thanks a lot for yeah. elevating me <laughs> to, to a different style. Yeah. <laughs> Either one, you're in the Hall of Fame. You don't look back and say, you know, like how you got there. It's just that you made the bar. That's it. Yeah. John Lukomnik, thank you so much. Thanks, man. That's it. If you don't follow John at Outside In, his podcast, go do that, especially because I'm going to be on it. As if you can't get enough of listening to me talk. Like everyone in my office right now is rolling their eyes. Um, big thanks to John for showing up here. Uh, otherwise, we'll be back as a full crew on Friday to wrap the week. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>